your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save them. Here we go. Five. If we find out. Yes, you are. Three. Have no children yet coming back. Two. I love you forever, and I'm coming back. Interstellar in theaters and IMAX November 7th. All right, folks, welcome back to Who's Filmography Is It Anyway, uh, where the points are just like the talent portion of a beauty contest. Uh, as always, uh, your host, uh, Joshua Page, and with me, my uh, co-host and friend, Stephen Molina. Look Steven? at that. I got the friend this time, too. Look at this. <laughs> it almost took us the entire Nolan segment, but we're here. Oh, man. We're almost we, there, man. We're really, and this is the deepest and uh, grandest largest uh piece i think we'll tackle yet so i think it is definitely that, uh his bigliest work yet uh we're all about the time here the times past present future but um if we're going to talk about the future i think we have a you may have a few words to say about our boy uh mr nolan so well i don't really have anything uh you know written out or anything i just wanted to talk about his upcoming work tenant you want to talk about time shifts and Absolutely. i just wanted to discuss what's been coming out the past couple of weeks about him and Tenet in general, because it's broke a couple days, maybe a week or so ago that Warner brothers really wanted to hold back on Tenet for a little while. And Nolan is the one who was insisting that the movie come out in July. So let's, uh, let's just backtrack for a sec. So basically, um, uh, the, the whole spawn of this conversation, just for a future reference, is that this is due to COVID-19 and cinema basically being halted as we know it. Um, screeching uh, halt. Screamed to a screeching halt and really has made us all realize that we have the existential crisis of realizing uh, we don't know really what we're all living for. So it's kind of just, we don't have that therapy, uh, you know, in the uh, AMC and Regal theaters. So it's... To backtrack, Tenet was supposed to come out when? It was July, mid July 17th originally. But okay. now it got pushed back two weeks to July 30th, I believe, uh, somewhere okay. around there. So now that we're entering phase three, I think it is going to be with movie theater. AMC has announced that they're going to open on July 15th. Uh, okay. AMC, Regal wants to open July 10th, 100% of their locations. Uh, AMC wants to open July. 15th with 450 of their 600 locations so theaters are going to start opening in july and warner brothers wanted to push tenant back even further originally they wanted to push back uh much further i believe they wanted like to i think that originally they were again i have no confirmation but uh i believe they wanted to move dune to next year and move tenant to december Oh, that'd be devastating. I mean, it'd probably be better because the numbers would be better because we'd be able to go sit and uh Well, enjoy. it may have actually worked out better because from what I heard recently, uh, Denis Villeneuve said that they were going to do reshoots on Dune in August, which obviously cannot happen right now, given right. everything that's going on. 
Mm -hmm. So maybe pushing Dune wouldn't have been the end of the world. Well, pushing Dune isn't really the problem, I think, because we don't even have a trailer for Dune. You know, we don't even... All we know is it was supposed to come out later this year, or that was the plan anyway. It's but. supposed to come out December. It took the, you know, Star Wars spot, because, you know, the past couple of years, barring Solo, uh, <laughs> December has been the prime spot for Star Wars movies. And let's face it, we need a good movie to come out for the Star Wars slot, because it's been a little, it's been a hot minute since we've had a good movie in the Star Wars slot. <laughs> It's true, but don't worry. We got Dune this year, and next year we got Avatar 2, which everyone That's, is clamoring for. I don't stop reminding me that that exists. I literally just there's I think there's like four or five sequels. I can't even. I'm not open. I'm not going down that rabbit hole tonight. Well, they picked up filming again uh, in New Zealand because oh, New Zealand is COVID free right now. Basically, uh, Nolan is the one, not WB, who wants to keep Tenet out as early as possible. Yes, because Nolan has this complex that is just very prevalent throughout really all of his <laughs> yeah. He wants to be the savior of cinema and it's just like dude, like calm down. Like no one is going to question your genius if you move your film. Do you think it's a question of of his genius or more so just as a business tactic he's really just sticking to his guns because he thinks he can. I think he wants to be able to say that he single-handedly saved the movie theaters from going under. And he, and by saving movie theaters, you mean that in sense of putting Tenet out, he knows that people are going to flock to it because it's got his name all over it. Exactly. He just wants that tag on him because it will give him more clout, especially because Tenet costs $200 million to make. I think maybe that's what's really behind it. The movie costs $200 million to make. So if it flops right now, it's not his fault. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that no matter what, the movie's not going to, no matter how great or not the movie is, I think that it's going to, it's expected to have a big opening. But I think still, even with it coming out in July, I still don't think there's any way you can compare the numbers to any of his movies because of what's been going on with the pandemic. It's like realities. You'd have to wait for life to kind of go back to normal in that well, sense. Let's talk about that for a minute. You know, I just told you uh, theaters are going to open July 10th and July 15th. Are you ready to go back to the, the movies? Uh, no, I, it's, it's, you know, uh, going to the movies. I was talking about this with a friend today, how going to the movies is like a, a rite of passage almost and how the future of, movies for a lot of people i feel like it's gonna be like when a new movie drops people are gonna be like oh did you see this thing and it's like yeah i watched it on hulu it's like oh did you see that movie it's like yeah i watched it on netflix and it's gonna be this constant because that's already happening um yeah netflix is the clear benefactor of this whole covid situation yeah i mean it's really just and because it's i don't it's, think these vod drops are really making as much money as uh, no the rea- the reality is you'll never hear because uh, you know what it is it's the buzz it's like i hear about people at work it's like oh did you watch this thing and it's and all all the time it's just it's just netflix stuff you know people asking um like oh did you watch um what is it uh the the wrong missy or the new missy or something there's some, there's some new comedy with david spade uh-huh. and everyone was saying how it's supposed to be very funny, but it's, it's like the Happy Madison crew. So it's like, for me, Happy so, Madison. No, that's not going to be funny. <laughs> post however many years. Like, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying it's, I, I'd have to watch it, but like, it's just funny because it became this thing 
where everyone was a lot of people were talking about it for like a couple of days and it disappeared or how a couple of months ago it was uh, tiger king and it was kind of just this uh, it was an event you know it was kind of but it was all the streaming because that's all that people have yeah and um, let's be real here like i was just saying with these vod drops they may not be making money because who wants to spend twenty dollars on one movie that yeah. you are renting like right. you and i talked about king of staten island sure yeah. i want to see the movie but i'm yeah. not paying twenty dollars to rent the movie that's not even to own the movie that is to yeah. rent it for a 48 hour period which is, that ironic. is absurd <laughs> which is ironic because if that came out in the theater normally i would probably pay to go see it in the theater for one time but the thing Versus- is like you're you're still at home. When you're paying for the movie at the theater, you were paying for the theater experience. You're paying that's for what, it to that be was on the, the big screen. That's the point the I was about to make. Speakers. Oh yeah, give me the and, popcorn and the AC and the giant ass screen and the huge sound and the dimmed lights and the experience. And again, I am quite sure I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I'm an AMC Stubbs person. So yes. really I'm paying $25 a month for three movies a week. So that would have been covered for me. I wouldn't be paying $20 to see one movie. You know, th- that's just absurd to me. Yeah. Especially for a Judd Apatow movie where I know it's going to be at least 30 oh. minutes too long. Well, don't, don't, don't go slamming Judd Apatow now. We haven't really gotten to him yet. But it's but you, that his movies are at least half an hour too long all the they time. Go- they go on it's it's very strange because he gets very comfortable with those movies i remember i felt it when i first watched knocked up that was the one i saw it in the theater and i was like this is great and i do love that movie and i was like oh surely it's over soon and there was like another 40 minutes and it just kept going that's and like, i have saying. no i have no problem with that when i'm into a movie i want it to be longer that's why with like with silence like i was like bring on the runtime yeah but with comedies i feel like less is more john cleese said there's a metronome when it comes to comedy films because you have to hit laughs every so often or else it's not going to succeed comedy i also think is one of the most unique genres of film because you have to make people laugh and and people have different senses of humor so what kind of humor are you going for and there's slapstick there's that's why comedy is dead right now well yeah we can scratch all this right there's a whole i mean i i have a philosophy that the the hangover we talked about it i think the hangover killed the comedy hangover killed the comedy you know uh there are comedies before the hangover and there's comedies after the hangover and i love the hangover but everything changed then Um, i think that it's a mix of the hangover being so funny that it killed the rest yeah and it's also the pc culture some things part of it. that are not things that we used to consider funny are no longer allowed to be funny. And now we've entered this era of the dramedy where dramas are considered comedies and it's not, they're not funny. Well, the, to bring it full circle, because what I was going to say about Judd Apatow is that it's the whole, the whole metronome of comedy is that uh, Judd Apatow is one of those filmmakers who breaks that ground where like, yeah, his movies are comedies, but he also, even in 40 year old version, he's got some like, even if they're small, he's got serious things to say. He's got, he, he has breaks where he's like, okay, we're, we're actually making a commentary on society or like a person or a relationship. And what he does is he takes it seriously enough that you could believe these characters exist in the real world. It just happens to make you laugh a lot. And I think that's where his little loophole is where he gets away with making nearly three hour long films, which yeah, of course it's too long for a comedy. It's absurd. 
but if you're enjoying the experience, like when you like with knocked up, like I think it's great. Where like this is forty, I really Oof. could not wait for it to end, and that was just to show that movie yeah. was way too long. That movie was what like <laughs> two hours and like fifteen minutes or something. <laughs> Forgetting Sarah Marshall is what like an hour forty minutes. That you get in, you so get good. out, and it's funny. It's funny. It has something to say about life, who you are as a person, and how you handle breakups. You can yeah. say something and be funny in and a in a, in a finite yeah. amount of time. Absolutely. Or you can even, like look at Life of Brian. You know, if yeah. you want to go back to uh, John Cleese here, you know that movie is literally talking about God like the biggest topic that you could possibly breach. And it and is an they, hour 30, you know? They nail it. They just nail it. They get right to the jokes. They know exactly what they want to do. They know exactly how they want to make the people laugh. And they're in and they're out. And I, I don't know, man. That's why Monty Python and those guys, that's why they, they knew what they were doing, you know? God, they're, they're the masters. I but anyway, I, I don't know how we got here from Nolan. How do, and, well, uh, we got to Jed Apatow. All right, but cool. anyway, Nolan wants to be the savior of cinema and it's just like another stroke of his ego in my opinion i, I don't I, know if it's the savior of cinema but he definitely wants to make a statement by saying amidst this pandemic i still want to put out my movie so uh you want to get yes. into interstellar let's get deep in to the interstellar Boom. um oh, so man. tell me josh what was the first time you saw this movie 2014 not unlike The Dark Knight Rises, I was working at a summer camp and my co-camp uh, counselors slash friends uh, we wanted to go see this movie because it, it had become what I uh, would categorize as an event movie. Um, when a, a, a franchise name or director's name makes it so big that you get a group together and you're like, we have to go see this. This is an event. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, that's what so, he's best at. Absolutely. And I had remembered uh, going to see this and it was during um yeah it was during that time it was summer of 2014 and i saw it and i remember being mesmerized by the trailers and i watched it and let's just say i i guess it was like i don't know if i saw it on a friday maybe um and you did like not a, leave your seat dry <laughs> i think you <laughs> i was so moist but the um i basically so just to put in perspective i watched it and it was like a, i guess it was like a friday night and i saw it again not even 24 hours later wow. it was like a it was like a saturday early evening or with my little brother so um that i just it was an unforgettable experience and uh yeah I'm, I'll, I'll just i'll leave it at that for now my first time i saw it uh with a couple friends at uh, the amc in Times square actually on the imax screen there which looking back i regret not going to the Lincoln Center screen because that one I don't know if you've ever been there, but that IMAX screen is fucking massive. I have. I've been. I saw Force Awakens there. Um, not for my first time, but I saw it when I went to go see it again. I saw it there, and it is real. That is the IMAX theater to end all IMAX theaters. Absolutely. And anyway, my friends and I went to go see uh, Interstellar at the Times Square theater. Did you see it your first time in IMAX? Interstellar. It, it had to be. I, I actually can't remember, but I feel like that this, if there's one movie he's been building towards to be seen in IMAX, this was it. I think I did see, did see it in IMAX because I remember I took a picture of the stub because I'm a loser. I remember posting it on the, on the internet and I was like, Hey, you know, whatever. And it was, so, I remember right. seeing IMAX on it. I have a mug filled with my ticket stubs. 
Oh, I have the same one, or it's somewhere in my room, but it's I have them rubber banded together. I have well, I a rubber band doesn't even fit the. Stuff yeah, I, ha- I I started using. I don't even know what I was using to band them. The the earliest one I have is Meet the Parents from two thousand. I have like a two thousand tens collection because I think the first one I have is like uh, it might be Inception or Toy Story three, which is Those now are... ten years old. Oh man, we're getting old. I know. Um, so you but saw an IMAX. Saw it an IMAX, and uh, again, we're saving our feelings for later. But uh, you know, IMAX is the way to see the movie. This is this is a movie to see in IMAX for sure. You want to get into pre-production? I would love to. Cool. I don't have uh, too much. Let's start with the science here, because they brought in this guy, Kip Thorne who was a theoretical uh, physicist and he was the, you know, science expert that was brought on and they actually gave him an executive producer credit on the film, which I was just going to mention him. Yeah. But he worked hand in hand with Nolan to develop the science and the theories that would go into the film. Like he would, he wrote out the equations on Murphy's chalkboard and the equations actually helped develop the VFX for this film because they took what he wrote down and were able to conceptualize what it would look like from his theories. Like the idea of Kim making a black hole look the way it did. Yeah. According to Nolan and Kip, I, I don't know the validity of this. I can't say that I've studied every science fiction movie ever, but this is like the first science fiction movie that has ever really taken Einstein's theories into account when developing a black hole in a wormhole. It's this first IMDb trivia bit I read earlier today. It was it said um, earlier in pre-production, uh, Thorne laid down two guidelines to strictly follow: nothing would violate established physical laws, and that all the wild speculations would spring from science and not the creative mind of a screenwriter. Nolan accepted these terms as long as they did not get in the way of making the movie. (laughs) That did not prevent clashes, though. At one point, Thorne spent two weeks talking Nolan out of an idea about traveling faster than light. They filmed in Alberta, Canada, which is where the town and the cornfields were made. Uh, They shot in Iceland, which was man's planet. And... Mm -hmm. They shot on a Los Angeles soundstage. Now, the soundstage was used the most because that's where they built a lot of the spaceships and uh, everything. They actually built the actual ship that uh, what Cooper flies, and they put right. hydraulics. So, like, they can literally move it however they needed to move it. That's so cool. Which is crazy. Yeah. They uh, did not use any green screens on this film at all. Which is really wild when you watch the final product. They used projections instead. So they created the VFX of space in advance. And outside of the window of the ships, they would project what the crew would be seeing, which is nuts. Yeah, that's wild when you look at it like that. Although I guess... Lucasfilm is now doing they kind of took this to the next step right I don't know if you watched the gallery show on Disney plus about the making of the Mandalorian I've been meaning to I haven't gotten around to it yet 
that what they built is fucking crazy on that show. <laughs> it is like astounding. You sh- I highly recommend that show. But as oh yeah, absolutely. But as we've said with um, I think it was Inception. We were talking about it that it goes such a long way using the genuine production value. Um, just like hard equipment rather than like relying on CGI. Like it's re- it and green screen. Like it really makes a difference. They built a lot of miniatures. They built an endurance that was a 15th yeah, built, scale model. It was a whole thing that they did, right? They built the whole. They were tiny. They were little scales, right? They were smaller. Uh, I mean, a 15th scale model is still huge. The 15th scale model was shot on a VistaVision camera, and it was shot with very low light because they wanted natural lighting. They put one light in the far off distance because that's what the sun would be. Mm-hmm. And they shot it at three or four frames per second. So it would, they would be lucky if they got four shots in one day. Jeez. It's nuts. Now Let's on the see. flip side, they also built a fifth scale model of just the parts of the endurance that ultimately blow up. And when filming, they needed to build it so big because for pyrotech reasons and for detail reasons, because the debris coming out, they couldn't build it small enough for the 15 right. scale model. But they shot that at 72 frames per second. So that when it slows down while playing, it would match how it looked, how debris flying in space would look. Like, I don't know how they did that math, but it's, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, the amount of detail in that kind of stuff is like so, it's just so admirable, but uh, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. We talked about how this was IMAX. Yeah. Uh, they actually released this uh, movie in theaters in, on film, like genuine film. Like Warner Brothers had to call cinemas up and say, do not get rid of your film camera. <laughs> We're coming in hot. We're coming in hot. The movie itself was 49 reels in IMAX, which Jeez. equated to 600 pounds of film. Can you imagine? It's like, hey, I just shot this movie. I was like, well, uh, how much did it cost? And it's like 600 pounds of film. And it's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> how do you even like get that up to the projection room? How does it even fit in the projection room? That's outrageous. But I mean, he's, hey, I mean, you could lump him in one of those categories with uh you know uh, tarantino scorsese scorsese he's one of those guys who's he wants to preserve film he loves the idea he loves the look uh let's talk about the music because Hans zimmer comes back again i don't remember what it was i think i was saying inception was like it was inception i was saying was zimmer's best color with his collaboration with nolan that uh, inception was his best and i think that this i do still feel that way but I feel like this is a, for me, it's like, I don't know. It's hard to even rank Zimmer's scores for Nolan because they're all great. But like, it's just, this is so unique. It's so different. It's I was so about to unique. Say, Inception falls in line with what Zimmer typically writes for a Nolan film. But this one is just vastly different. And that's because most of the music is actually played on an organ. I love it. Yeah, Zimmer said... Uh, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but essentially he said that an organ is similar to a human because it's an instrument that releases air. You know, it breathes just like a human being would. 
I have a note here. Composer Hans Zimmer was instructed by Nolan to make a unique score. It's time to reinvent the endless string. Uh, ostinatos need to go by the wayside. The big drums are probably in the bin. That's the quote. Nolan did, not <laughs> Nolan did not provide Zimmer a script or any plot details for writing music for the film and instead gave the composer one page of text that had more to do with Zimmer's story than the plot of the movie. Sounds like something Nolan would do. Yeah. And finally, we could just talk Oscar nominations. It was nominated for five awards and it won one. It won for VFX, which is ironic because as we noted, he didn't use green screen at all. Uh, it was also nominated for original score, sound editing, sound design, and production design. And it lost uh, original score to Grand Budapest Hotel. Ah, uh, I mean, damn. And it lost production design to Grand Budapest Hotel. So I, I, I can't knock. I can't knock that. I, I mean, I that's, cannot that's... knock that, especially production design, because let's real the grand budapest like the hotel in grand budapest hotel is a character in the movie in of itself yeah the way they they stitch together just those wide shots of it the, the i mean i don't know the way it's designed it's oh my god it's incredible and then you well, just get to see so much of it that's what i'm saying like i'm not knocking the, the production design in interstellar is fucking phenomenal <sighs> don't get me wrong yeah, it's tough. This is a very right. much an apples and oranges conversation for me. It is an apples and oranges conversation. So, uh, you ready to get into the film? I am beyond ready. It starts with a pan on a bookshelf, but something is off. The air around the shelves is dead, yet strewn with dust. An interview with an old woman, Ellen Burstyn, begins to play. My father was a farmer, like everyone else back then. A vast cornfield is shown. In this moment, though, we do not know it. Nolan has shown us all we need to know about this unspecified future. The world is covered in dust, books are abandoned, and corn is king. The tone shifts drastically as flashes of Joseph Cooper, although they never actually say his first name throughout the entire movie. I had to I look up his first name. I was going to say, he was always, always Coop. The He's always so. Cooper or Coop. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, who we have to mention, who was in his McConaissance at the time, crashing a jet begins to play out. Cooper wakes up from the nightmare, he, which he has had before. At his bedroom door is his daughter Murphy, Mackenzie Foy. She thought the noise Cooper was making in his sleep was, his, was her ghost. Cooper insists that there are no such things as ghosts. As stubborn as her father, bites back noting that Grandpa believes in ghosts. Cooper says that's because he is almost one. <laughs> it's pretty no. no slight on John Lithgow in that one. <laughs> Notable Nolan humor. While a throwaway line and bad Nolan humor, it is a quick way to tell the audience that Cooper and the grandfather do not see eye to eye on many issues. Cooper sends Murphy back to bed, but for Cooper, the day has just started. He approaches the bedroom window and looks out into the cornfield. 2001 music begins to play. I don't That's know if you noticed that. What day is that? The, uh... that was, as he walks towards the window, it's like this it's... rising organ sound. Organ. Which, it... it sounded very much like uh, the end the of sound. Um, the intro yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. It, by oh. about 40 years. 
Well, this is this is not the most direct Kubrick reference yet. This is more of homage, which we'll we'll get to in the end. But this movie is very much in the vein of 2001: A Space Odyssey. The old woman giving the interview comes back on to reinforce just how bad the world has become. "Quote: The wheat had died, the blight came, and we had to burn it, and we still had corn. We had acres of corn, but oh, mostly we had dust." While the interview continues, Donald, John Lithgow, shows the living conditions firsthand. First, by sweeping the dust mounds on the porch, setting the table with the plate set down, and cleaning the kitchen. Dust is literally everywhere. At breakfast, we are introduced to Cooper's son, Tom. Timothy Chalamet, guys. Come on. Yeah. Came out of nowhere. muted, uh, Muted claps for Timothy Chalamet. I don't think I had seen him in anything before this. I don't know if he was in anything. But I, I haven't looked into his IMDb page. <laughs> Murphy comes down to the table holding a broken model of an Apollo spacecraft, again insisting that her ghost did it. With a nudge from Donald, Cooper does not dismiss Murphy again, but insists that she should treat this ghost like a science experiment. Donald also reminds Cooper that there is a parent-teacher conference at the school today. Cooper will go begrudgingly. As they all load into Cooper's truck, the family sees a neighbor burning their own crop. The blight has stricken the crops. On their way to the school, Cooper lets Murphy control the gear stick. A back tire blows. They pull to the side, but Tom reminds Cooper they do not have a tire. In fact, the tire that was popped was the spare. Very unfortunate for this family. Um, Cooper dismisses Tom, saying he can figure it out. Meanwhile, Cooper tries to console Murphy, who is upset about her name. Took her a little while to get upset about her name. It literally came out of nowhere. I was like, why are you all of a sudden mad about your name? This literally just came out of nowhere. You're literally just on the side of the car crying. It's like, couldn't have brought this up the past, what, 12 years of your life here? Well, when does does the Timmy Chalamet go uh, say oh it's when the, when the car goes he says something oh yeah well Murphy's Law and then she makes like a face and I guess that's what sets her off I guess I he guess. bullies her I guess I he guess. bullies her about this sort of thing that's the setup but um, but yes yeah, upset so. about her name it means uh, what it means is whatever can happen will happen which Cooper notes is not such a bad thing the conversation is abruptly ended as a drone flies overhead big ass drone and fast by the way um Though the tire is not fixed, they load into the car and chase after it. The chase takes an excessive turn when Cooper turns into a cornfield and continues full speed ahead. Reaching for his laptop, Cooper hands the wheel to Tom. This is a clear metaphor being presented. Oh, yes, the first of many. Cooper is literally handing the wheel of the family over to Tom as he focuses on the spacecraft. It's also a reminder that no Nolan character should ever be driving. I like that we've, I like that we've flagged this to Memento. Um, this is literally a trope through all of his films that we have noted. Literally, none of his characters should ever be driving. His characters are very dangerous behind the wheel. Be it their memory being lost, or be it them being distracted by little planes. Um, Cooper pulls out his laptop and gains control of the drone. Cooper is very curious as to why the drone, which had been flying for about 10 years, suddenly came down. Cooper and the kids finally pull to the school parking lot with the new drone loaded into the back. 
Murphy is worried about the meeting Cooper is about to have with her teacher. Not for her sake, but for the teachers. Cooper goes to the principal's office. The principal. Uh, David O'Yellowell, come on. David O'Yellowell. I yeah, was like, I, when I saw him, I was like, really? Holy shit. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, he played Martin Luther King in Selma. He was in the show Star Wars Rebels. He was callous. I, uh, the principal tells Cooper, Tom will make a great farmer, but does not have the grades for college. Ouch. How I how ironic. Much to Cooper's uh, chagrin, the principal notes farming is noble and farmers are needed more now than ever. Attention switches to Murphy, who is in trouble. She had been getting into fistfights, insisting that the lunar landing took place. So it's not about her name. <laughs> but the lunar landing is, yes, of course, this is you know, something we'll be debating for years to come. Um, which the teacher insists it did not. As a Kubrick fan, no one know the rumors surrounding the faking. That's a funny bit. Kubrick is the one who has been in the center of uh, faking the moon landing. Oh, absolutely. That's what uh, The Shining's about. Come on, guys. Yeah. I mean, we got to open our eyes here. This is more, this is a very clear nod. That's a, what is it, the second Kubrick nod in your book? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, aghast, Cooper has had enough of the uh, ignorance of the educators before him, saying that if technology was still taken seriously, his wife would still be alive. Furthermore, Cooper will not reprimand, but reward Murphy's behavior by taking her to a baseball game. Uh, Cooper has gotten Murphy suspended, but there's little time to argue. Donald's voice comes through the radio. Cooper is needed at home as the tractors are not working properly. A lot of farm problems. Um, as Cooper and Murphy enter the home, uh, there a thud comes from Murphy's room. Books are on the floor. Murphy is convinced that the ghost is trying to talk to her in Morse code. Cooper, meanwhile, has to fix the compasses on the tractors. Something is wrong with the magnetic pull. After a hard day's work, Cooper and Donald relax with beers. Cooper is lamenting that humans were not made for this kind of existence. We are explorers, not caretakers. Don Donald rebuffs him, but also notes that Cooper's relentlessness is simply part of his nature. You're the one who doesn't belong. Born 40 years too late or 40 years too early. What is it with Nolan and wise father-in-laws? Seriously, this is this an inception. He has this thing where like the father-in-law is like the sage old man who's like there to help you guide you through the uh, problems of the day. It's part of his formula. He's got to have some older figure to help at least post memento. Or, there's, or, or whenever, I don't know what the timeline is, maybe it's Batman Begins, that he has to have someone to just point out, like, no, 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 I've been in your shoes, you're doing this all wrong. You know, don't make, you know, learn from your mistakes. The next day, Cooper, Donald, and the kids go to the baseball game, uh, which I don't know if you don't, no, you didn't have list this. It, uh, I would like to say the funny bit where he says, uh, what he said, back in my, he said, who are these guys? Back in my day, we had real players. And it's supposed to be the New York Yankees, these guys? Yeah, they were wearing the Yankee emblem. <laughs> I, it was very strange to think that this is some future where... Well, I also didn't note it in uh, here, but uh, through what Donald talks about continuously, we can surmise that he's probably about our age, maybe a, like he grew up in our age. Like, he would be us, or maybe a little bit younger than us. Because in the monologue, which I cut out, when he says you're born 40 years too late or too early, he also mentions, like, how 
every day there was a new invention coming out and everyone wanted it. It was like, it was Christmas every day. So like, they don't specify when this takes place, but they kind of allude to the fact that Donald is growing up now. I mean, it makes sense with how crabby he is. I can already relate to him. (laughs) He says this line, he's like, popcorn isn't meant to be eaten at ball games i want a hot dog and i'm like and i was like i can i feel that so here we are watching the new york yankees uh in their grand field while a dust cloud comes over very let me get back to vibes yeah very field very field down the cornfield for the baseball stadium it's really really something it's really really something um uh, the game is quickly interrupted by an incoming dust storm. The family manages to make it home, but Murphy forgot to close her window. Oh, man. Poor little Murph. Forgot well, to close the window. if anything can happen, it will happen. <laughs> oh, man. you Murphy's law of a person, right? The room is consumed by dust, but the dust has landed on the floor and has done... And ha- the dust has landed on the floor, but has done so in a strange pattern. Cooper is transfixed by what he is seeing. The next morning, he's still staring at the dust, but Cooper has figured it out. The ghost is not a ghost at all, but gravity. And is he really wrong? Is it really both? Is it the ghost? Is it gravity? Obviously, we'll get there. And the messages are not Morse code, but binary. Deciphering the dust, Cooper gets coordinates. He is uh, emphatic about going, but tells Murphy she cannot come. Of course, Murphy does not listen. During Cooper's drive, she pops out a pile of clothing in your seat. The drive continues late into the night. They finally arrive at a gate in the middle of nowhere. As Cooper inspects the gate further, lights flash straight ahead. Before he knows it, Cooper is tased and unconscious. It takes a moment to realize, but Cooper is being interrogated by a marine robot, TARS, Bill Irwin, who is pickles on Third Rock from the Sun here. So this is the second third rock from the sun guy. Wow. Yeah. And wow, Pickles is good. like a deep dive. That's like, he's that literally in dive. two episodes of third rock. From the that's sun. great. Tars wants to know how Cooper found the facility. Cooper, while curious about where he is, is focused solely on finding out what happened to Murphy. Cooper swears if Murphy is given back to him, he will tell his captors whatever they want to know. Dr. Amelia Brand, Anne Hathaway, is willing to take that deal. Second Ladies movie in a row. and Anne Hathaway, second movie in a row. I feel like Nolan likes to do that. He'll, he likes someone and he'll put him in the very next movie. Do you have as much a half a hate in this movie as you do in uh, Dark Knight Rises? Not, no, no. I think she's, I mean, I still feel the way I do about her in general, but I just, she's more tolerable for me in this movie. We've had this discussion before. I just don't think Nolan writes women characters very well. Yeah, we have talked about Yeah, that's an ongoing problem. It is an ongoing problem. Cooper and Dr. Brand enter a boardroom. Around the table are several men in suits. However, Murphy is strategically placed at the head, foreshadowing what is to come. This is apparently an allegory. Like the way that this table is laid out is like a, it mirrors like a famous painting. Um, and that there's, a, I guess, 11 other people had gone to on the mission and there are people pointed out like it's supposed to be like 12 people going like it's like so 12 followers Jesus? right people are making more religious allegories out of it so i had read on so from the center of the table cooper hears an old familiar voice professor brand michael kane also i didn't mean that that was no pun intended i didn't mean to call him old i just meant like 
It's a familiar <laughs> voice. <laughs> the line of inquiry continues. Cooper, now holding Murphy, tells the boardroom that finding this place was from an anomaly. Murphy interjects to say that it was because of gravity. Everyone at the table looks at one another. The table notes that they may have had contact with the same anomaly, simply referred to as they or them. Cooper stops the inquiry to say that he will not talk anymore until he gets, you know, assurances. Specifically, <laughs> they'll, that they'll walk out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the table in... Uh, the table erupts with laughter, springing Professor Brandt to ask Cooper if he knows where he is. It's NASA. In a tour of the NASA facility, the audience gets a classic Nolan exposition dump. NASA has been brought back in secret to look for long-term solutions to the planet's problems. Professor Brandt continues that because of the blight, Earth will soon run out of food. Even the corn will die. The air will become so toxic. Quote, the last people to starve will be the first to suffocate. <laughs> Some bleak stuff here. There's Cooper, a lot of bleak stuff going on here. Cooper wants to know what the plan is to save Earth. Bran follows up by simply saying, we're not meant to save it. We're meant to leave it. It was also pointed out that the building that Cooper and Brand are currently in is a spacecraft under construction. Brand then stops talking. He cannot tell Cooper anymore unless he agrees to pilot the upcoming mission, stating simply that they sent you here, but following up that Cooper would be gone for years. Cooper agrees, and the exposition continues. 48 years ago, a wormhole near Saturn opened up. NASA believes that they opened it. Beyond the wormhole are 12 planets. 10 years ago, uh, Project Lazarus, led by Dr. Mann, quote-unquote, the bravest of men, went through the wormhole. Communication is weak. Only binary blips have made it their way back. Three planets are possible contenders for humans. Brand then finally gets to his plan. Plan A is for Cooper and the team to search the planets, and once confirmed, all humanity will be moved there. Plan B still requires going to the planets, but instead of returning, a colony would be started using the genetic material being placed aboard the spacecraft. In other words, plan B would mean everyone on Earth will die, but humanity will survive. The only snag is that in order to get everyone off the planet, Professor Brand would need to solve a gravitational formula. Brand promises Cooper, quote, find us a new home, and by the time you return, I will have solved the problem of gravity. I give you my word. This becomes more than what you think it is watching as Yeah, this movie likes really likes to uh, throw a lot of exposition and a lot of just, I guess, it takes science, you, science it, at you. It wants it, to throw it, as much at you. I feel, like this is, I feel like this is Nolan's neediest movie in a way, because essentially he's asking the audience to go like, see, I did my homework. I did it. Give me an A, please. Murphy runs into the house and slams her bedroom door. She knows that Cooper's going to space and is pissed, to put it lightly. <laughs> Donald and Cooper have their final beer together. Donald thinks Tom will be fine, because why would it an already neglected child care? Yeah, does this kid, like, even get any love from his father? I'm sorry, but, like... Tough love. I don't want to get into my feelings on the movie yet, but I have to just note while we're here that... 
Tom's character really just doesn't need to exist. Tom, uh, the son. Yeah, the son. Just yeah. like the movie is about Cooper and his daughter, of and course. by putting Tom in this movie, essentially what Nolan is doing is creating a kid that feels like he doesn't matter at all, and it's never even broached. He exists as a juxtaposition. He exists to be the opposite of Murphy in almost every way. Things need to be made right with Murphy with promises you can with promises you can keep. Murphy's door is blocked by a desk with a chair piled on top. Still, Cooper gingerly pushes forward, sitting next to a hysterical Murphy on the bed. Can we take a pause here? Yeah, of course. It's it's almost comical how easily Cooper pushed that door open when there was literally a desk with shit piled on top of it <laughs> in front of the door. He literally just like gingerly pushes the door and it slides open. He just McConaughey his way in there. And all kids should know when you're angry at your parents, you really, and you want to block them out, you got to really barricade You got to barricade that door. Uh, Cooper talks about Murphy's mother saying, now we're just here to be memories for our kids. And I think now I understand what she meant. Once you're a parent, you're a ghost of your children's future. Uh, Murphy sharply retorts, you said ghosts don't exist. Cooper believes his destiny is set as they choose him. Murphy pulls her notebook out. She broke binary code, and it was it simply read, stay. Cooper, thinking this is a ploy, hugs Murphy tightly as she squirms. To try and soften the blow, Cooper pulls out his watch and hands it to Murphy. Cooper says when he gets back, they can compare the times. And in a complete miscalculation, <laughs> Cooper... Th- <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a great way of putting it. And in a complete <laughs> and a complete miscalculation, Cooper then implies that when he returns, he may be the same age as Murphy. Oh, McConaughey, you stupid, you big, stupid, dumb idiot. Big, stupid, stupid man. If only he knew. If only he knew the power of words. Oh my god. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> I just would love to see him take out the watch. You see this? All right, all right, all right. We could be the same age. Hey, I keep getting Big, dumb idiot. I could keep getting old. You could keep getting older and I'll be the same age. That's what I love about my daughter. Oh <laughs> that one. my god. You can't. <laughs> oh shit. I'm sorry, we can cut all this, but that's what I that it's immediately that's what I love about my daughter. She can keep getting older, I stay the same age. Like good grief, man. Like that is <laughs> a complete reversal of days to confused. Oh, oh man, that just that gets dark real quick. Oh, Holy man. that is good. That's if if only just that, that is good. That's I never thought we'd I I didn't even think we'd reach that line. That's good. Murphy looks up with horror. You have no idea when you're coming back. Rejecting the gift, Murphy throws the watch across the room. Cooper, please, don't make me leave like this, Murph. Under the sheets, Murphy ignores him, but there is no time. Cooper leaves the room, promising to come back. The countdown is heard as Cooper says goodbye to Tom and drives away. As the countdown hits three, Murphy runs out of the house towards the truck, but it is too late. The ship has launched, in which this is the first moment with Hans Zimmer's score where it truly kicks in. Oh, man, it truly takes off. I mean, just no pun intended. At the 42-minute mark, the film is finally in space. On the spaceship is Cooper and three other humans, Dr. Amelia Brand, Romilly, David Gayazzi, and Doyle, Wes Bentley. Where's that guy been? Where has Wes Bentley been? 
know, he vanished after uh, American Beauty. American, I thought I was going to say American Horror Story, but I think that we're talking about um. Well, uh, yeah, but he was in what, the fifth season of American Horror Story. He wasn't even in the first couple. Also aboard is Tars, who has his humor setting up to 100, but honestly to 90. Um, if really Nolan's been trying to prove that he's funny, which it's he doesn't too often, but he has really been building his career to this robot. And so the crew faces their first test as the ship needs to latch onto the Endurance, the larger craft with the jets to get them to Saturn. It is a success, of course, because there are still two hours to go into the movie. <laughs> the uh, the Endurance, which is a punny name when you think about the, you know even just the length of everything going on here, uh, also gives the crew gravity and case. Uh, Josh Stewart, another robot with no humor settings on. The crew talks to Professor Brand on Earth, who reads them a poem by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave a closer day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Uh, the crew goes into their hibernation sleep for their 14-month trip. But first, Coop goes over the flight with TARS and records a message for his family. Back on Earth, Professor Brand pulls into Cooper's drive with Cooper's car, which is going to Tom. Again, the golden child. <laughs> Murphy is at first six. Here's a truck. <laughs> now, now, now you're done. <laughs> you're, you're a man now. Here's a truck. Uh, Murphy is at first excited, but quickly realizes it is not her father. Brand hands Donald the message Cooper has just reported. Brand also asks if he can tutor Murphy. Donald replies, she's already making fools out of her teachers. Maybe she should make a fool of you. I will say that the, in terms of this bit that we just talked about with the ship, the endurance is um, read a note that it's like a, a, a clock, like a pendulum. There's 12. Oh, I didn't pick up on that, but that's good. So, in an awe-inspiring shot, truly meant to be seen on the IMAX screen, we see the endurance has made it to Saturn. Cooper is already out of his hibernation and watching messages from home. Only Tom has sent them. Rob Millie, meanwhile, sits in the corner panicked. He does not like the idea that there is only millimeters of metal between him and absolute nothingness. Cooper quells his nerves by once again stating that humans are explorers and the endurance is their boat. Other than building an emotional tie to Rob Millie, the conversation also serves a purpose. After making it all the way to Saturn, Cooper finally asks what a wormhole is. I know he's acting as a surrogate for the audience, but Cooper knows complex shit. How does he not know what a wormhole is? I'm sorry, but like you made it this fucking far and you're just asking what a wormhole is? Well, I don't even remember how he words it. I would like to assume that he at least would have an idea, but I don't know if it's, I guess. All I know is at this point, Romilly has to explain what a wormhole is to their pilot. Romilly explains that a wormhole is a way to make a two-dimensional space into a third-dimensional space, making it possible to travel from one spot to another millions of light years away in no time. 
apologies if that is incorrect. I am not a scientist. So I just want, I just want to note that. <laughs> Physicists out there, if you're listening, I'm sorry. The journey through the wormhole begins in what looks like a more blackened version of hyperspace from Star Wars. The crew looks out the window. Cooper quickly learns the ship cannot be controlled while going through the portal. Dr. Brand also meets a gravitational anomaly with the first handshake with them. They made it through the wormhole. Communications are back up, kind of. The crew can receive messages, but cannot send any. There's no time to waste. The crew convenes and talk shop. The closest planet to the wormhole is referred to as Miller's planet, named after the astronaut who went there first, obviously. Immediately, a red flag goes off regarding the planet. It orbits a black hole, Gargantua. Due to relativity, this means that one hour on the planet equates to about seven years on Earth. Again, I'm not a physicist, so this is what the movie explains. Cooper does not want to risk going. If they are there too long, there won't be enough time for plan A to succeed. Doyle fights back, insisting plan B may be the wiser course of action. Bran agrees with Cooper, insisting that time needs to be considered a resource, much like oxygen. Cooper comes up with a compromise. The Endurance will be placed outside Miller's planet's orbit to avoid the time loop. Meanwhile, Cooper will lead a quick expedition to the planet to retrieve the data and come back. Ron Milley will stay on the Endurance to run the tests on Gargantua while everyone else goes to Miller's planet. Yet another amazing shot truly meant for IMAX. Cooper flies past Gargantua to Miller's planet. They begin their descent. But to conserve fuel, Cooper decides to set only air brakes. The landing was not elegant, but efficient. The planet is worse than previously thought. Time is slow. It is covered entirely by water, and gravity is 130% Earth's. With no time to lose, Cooper tells Brand, Case, and Doyle to move it. Case finds Miller's beacon within the wreckage of her ship. As Hans Zimmer's score crescendos, the crew realizes what they took for a mountain is actually a giant wave coming their way. It's which is, a wave. It's a, it's a wave. It's, it's a bear dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just to break here, I remember seeing this in the theater and being mesmerized because like the way the camera pans up and you think like, oh, this is a pretty big thing that they're looking at. And it just keeps going up and up and up and you realize it's a wave. And as the score comes in at that moment, because this is the ticking clock score. So, and that's also, I think, one of the most notable pieces because it's probably one of the quieter pieces Hans Zimmer's done, but it's also very different. But just the fact that he's using a literal ticking of a clock to, to go with the score. Just how, it's also a reminder just how much time is being, like, how right. much time it, counts on this planet. Well, because it makes you think if, like, uh, you know, seven years. It, what is it? Seven. It's seven, seven years for one hour. On the seven planet. years for one hour. So all of a sudden, like the audience is like kind of doing their math in their head, and they're thinking like, "Oh, they literally like every second literally counts." And so it's this is the perfect placement of a score like this, where the clock is accenting the scene because you're really feeling it. And then by the time it builds to the wave, you're kind of just um, 
that's when the score lifts and that's when the organs really come in. And it, I remember getting chills in the theater. And I remember just like at that scene, it's just like, it's an incredible shift because you, you can almost feel like the tension because of the clock alone, but you almost like, you could really, I don't know. You couldn't predict it was going to go that South. And this is the first real moment I that think quickly. for me that it really, everything goes South fast. And it's, it's very exciting. could have figured it out if you looked at the casting list and knew that, Jessica Chastain was about to take over. For yeah, I mean, you knew she was coming in somewhere, but like it was really just. I what I love about this is this is the first time the movie takes a deeper dive from what it's doing. Like they, they're talking science theory, this and that, and this is the first time where it's really like, oh, you're really taking a deep dive into some kind of like, you know, fact, science-based fiction in this. It's true science fiction in its most glorious aspect. Um. And again, it's just you know, kudos to Kubrick is because his print is all over this. But it's uh, the crew realizes what they t- uh, took for a mountain is actually a giant wave coming their way. Brand trying to acquire Miller's data uh, hesitates before running back to the ship. Cooper orders Case to grab Brand and make their way to the ship. The waves crash down on them. Brand make it to the ship, but Doyle is dead. Um, I will say I remember watching this in the theater. Because I think, because like I said, it was like a group of people. And I remember going with some friends from college like who came with us, like as part of this group. And I remember like laughing with one of my friends about the robot. Like I just, with TARS, I just kept kind of cracking up at how kind of outrageous of a character this was. And this was the first time he had kind of just kind of shifted a little bit when he picks up uh, Brandon, he, he starts spinning and he's just yeah. kind of uh it just kind of comes out of left field and it's just a very, it's a very comical character kind of, I feel, but it's. Well, not Case. Case has his humor settings down to zero. Um, but Doyle is dead. R.I.P. Doyle. First Rough casualty stuff of the for film. West Bentley. First oh. casualty of the film. Uh, exit West Bentley. You've had a good run. <laughs> You've had a good 10 minute run. Exit stage left. <laughs> Worse yet, because of the wave, the engines are flooded and it will take an hour to get them running again or seven years on Earth. Cooper is rightfully pissed, to put it lightly. Cooper tries to work out a plan with Brand to use the black hole to try and get back to the time they spent on the planet, insisting that somehow they did it. Brand fights back, saying to them, time may not be linear, but for us it is. There is no way to get the time back. As the second wave approaches, uh, Cooper depressurizes the engines and gets them back online. They fly back to the Endurance. Nolan holds a shot on the planet of a dead astronaut, either Doyle or Miller, doomed to float on a wasteland for eternity. Back on Endurance, Romilly tells Cooper and Brand that they've been on Miller's planet for 23 years, four months, and eight days. Brand tells Romilly there's nothing for them on the planet. Duh. <laughs> um, this is the first, this is the moment where they go back and he's like, he's like older, right? This yeah, is the an first old yeah. man. I remember this feeling he's an very old man filled with regret waiting to die alone. <laughs> my, my, my little brother always says, he always says, he says like, it's so, it's such, he always says, this is like the saddest moment. I mean, we, we, we talked about this because it's so depressing just to think this guy's just been sitting here on the ship. Think about like his, his friends going on like, or his, his crew members just le- disappearing and be like, yeah, yeah, we're going on this mission. It's dangerous, whatever. And all of a sudden, like, at what point do you just go, they're not coming back? Like, this is it. Like, it's over. You know what I mean? It's just, like, it's very depressing. Like, cause it's the first, that first time jump is just, like, oh, my God. Like, this I, is real. But at the same time, what can he do? Because Absolutely. he's not the pilot. 
he's literally either stuck there until he dies or you know there there really is no alternative it's really um it's the first time that he ups the stakes by not just killing i mean killing the astronauts in the mission is just like you know that's expected in terms of like the risk but like this is the first time that you see that there are some true stakes to like what's actually happening to the characters because now you're messing with time yeah and i stated it comically but you know could you imagine they come back it's been 23 years and then they have to tell you it was a bust you know it wasn't even a mission worth taking it you wasted right. 23 years of your life waiting for something that bore no fruit at all uh cooper in a daze walks away from the conversation and watches the messages sent from earth seamlessly the video is cut from one to the next tom is having a full life he's graduated got married and had a kid in more somber news tom also realized that donald has passed away uh r.i.p John Lithgow exit stage left in an unspecified unspecified amount of years. Tom now Casey Affleck enter Casey Affleck tells Cooper that he has to let him go. The music cuts out as Tom turns off the recording, but it is not the last message. Murphy Jessica Chastain appears on the screen in what has now become a classic meme. Cooper watching the message hysterically crying. Murphy tells her father it is her birthday. She is now the same age Cooper was when he left Earth. And I do think you can't talk this without, you know, yes, it has become meme culture. Just the crying. People have literally photoshopped so disrespectfully, photoshopped <laughs> other things with this video, and it's hilarious. It's amazing. But let's, let's just say, if anyone wants to ever put McConaughey's acting on the table, talk about an acting reel in just this one shot alone of just this man crying. Like, you really feel it. You feel this man's heart being ripped out. The only thing it's that could have made it better is if he had a there will be blood moment and shouted, I abandoned my child. (laughs) She is now the same age Cooper was when he left earth. The message abruptly ends as we cut back to earth. Professor Brand now in a wheelchair interrupts the message. She recording Murphy is still working with professor brand to solve the question of gravity. Professor brand says the equation may not be solved while he is alive. I am not afraid of death as a physicist. I am afraid of time. Murphy takes in what Professor Brand says and notes their equation never took time into account. Instead of excitement, Professor Brand leaves the room saying he wants to talk to his daughter. That should have been a tell right there. On the endurance, hard decisions have to be made. Due to the amount of time that was spent on Miller's planet, there is only enough fuel to go to one of the two remaining planets. While Edmund's planet has better data, man's planet is still transmitting. Brand votes for Edmund's planet. Cooper drops the axe by revealing that Edmund and Brand were once in love. Brand doesn't deny it. In fact, her argument is predicated on the power of love's, love's bind in the universe. Quote, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of love and space. Either vindictive or because he thinks it is a better prospect, Cooper tells Tars to set a course for man's planet. While checking on the eggs on the Endurance, Brand lashes out to Cooper, saying if man's planet is a bust, they go to Edmund's planet, not to Earth. was a quick flash to Earth. The dust pile-ups are getting worse, and people are getting sick. Tom's son, Jesse, has a horrible cough. Jesse is not the only one getting, uh, the only one sick. Getty, Topher Grace, where'd this guy come from? 
<laughs> this guy. This guy. Who would have thought he'd be in a Nolan movie? Uh, Getty, Topher Grace, is taking care of the of the dying Professor Brand. In the hospital bed, Professor Brand breaks down in front of Murphy. Quote, all those years I asked you to have faith. Professor Brand's dark truth is exposed. Plan A was never meant to work. Everyone on Earth is going to die. Murphy, sending a message to Amelia Brand, informs her that her father has passed. But in a sadistic laugh, with a tear in her eye, Murphy looks at the camera and asks if she knew. If her father knew that plan A was never meant to work. Murphy I mean, vows to finish the equation, but feels the secrets to the equation lie in her old bedroom. Sending through frozen clouds, the Endurance crew makes their way to man's planet. On the ground is a small base with a ripped American flag waving before it. The hibernation pod is still operating. Cooper breaks the seal. Inside is man. Revealed Matt Damon. Why was he kept such a secret? I don't understand why he was kept such a secret. I really don't. Uh, I, uh... I feel like they were trying to do the Saving Private Ryan again. Like, Matt Damon is always, like, the secret reveal. I don't get it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was... It it worked because, like... I mean, it worked, but not in the way that he was... I mean, don't get me wrong. He's an important monkey wrench in this whole plot. But he... It's... It goes back to what I wish to do with Robin Williams in Insomnia. As soon as man sees the Endurance crew... He breaks down sobbing. He never thought he would see humans again. Note, is this a Martian? Is this the Martian prequel? Um, I enjoy that theory very much because this is what? This was the the year year before before the Martian. I love that. As you'll read, Damon and Chastain are also in the Martian. So like, yeah, could be just like a prequel to the Martian. It's a little too on the nose. They're both very uh, deep space movies. And you prefer which one? I prefer the Martian. Well, you're, uh, that makes one of us. Uh, man declassifies his planetary finding. The planet is cold, undeniably beautiful. Days last 67 hours. And on the planet's surface is breathable air. In the corner of the base is his broken robot, Kip. Um, man is very clear. He does not want Kip fixed. When, while learning about the planet, Brand watches Murphy's message and is distraught. Even she was not privy to her father's treachery. But man was. He knew plan B was always the plan. Worse still, Anne's brand that her father solved the gravitational equation before he left. In the sense that the equation cannot be solved. Man notes the equation couldn't reconcile relativity with quantum mechanics. You need more data. You know, I wrote the statement out. Don't really know what it means, but I wrote it down. <laughs> By the way, uh, Cooper wants to get that extra data. The problem is that requires going into a black hole. Romilly essentially states that it is impossible. If a black hole is an oyster, then the singularity's the pearl inside. The gravity is so strong, it's always hidden in darkness behind the horizon. That's why we call it a black hole. But Romilly also pitches it might be possible to glide across the black hole for data. Before they leave, Cooper wants to have a look at the planet's surface as he still believes plan A can work and this planet can house humanity. Man takes Cooper for a tour, but immediately something is off. The music grows more and more ominous as the two make their way down. I remember feeling that in the theater. I remember they were walking and I was just the two of them and I was like, this is something's going to go horribly wrong and I don't know what it is. Um, man's duplicity is known as he rips off Cooper's communications link and throws him off a cliff. The name man seems to be a little on the nose. Yeah. 
Um, Cooper manages to catch himself as he falls, but Mann follows him down to finish the job. Mann breaks Cooper's helmet, but stays with him as Cooper suffocates. Man knows what it feels like to be alone, but as Cooper dies, it's a long suffocation process. Man has a Bond villain monologue. He explains that the planet is useless. He sent the beacon hoping someone would come, come for him. What's more, in, in his deranged mind, Man still believes that he can save all of humanity. Man plans to steal one of the spaceships, Commander the Endurance, and start over on Edmund's planet. Yeah, it's a pretty quick left turn. Um, and it's it's very talking about you know this being Nolan's philosophical think piece. This whole idea of man representing the selfishness <laughs> of of man is That's why very I said, it's on the a nose. Little on the nose. It's but it's it's good. It's almost it's almost like a reminder of just you know. Uh, I we'll get to it later, but I disagree. I don't. I this is where the movie takes a complete left turn for me. And that's I, I understand off the, off the grid. Um, and we'll get to that after, but um, I think the whole uh, juxtaposition of the saving humanity, you have all these people rallying together, let's save humanity, and then you've got one person like, no, it's like not going to work. We got to do it my way because whatever. It's just a very, very human being thing to do. As Case puts Kip back together, the base explodes, killing Romilly. Cooper manages to find his comlink uh, and contact Brand for help. Brand saves Cooper, but is now a race to the endurance. Man makes it to the ship first, but cannot latch the hatches. The computer will not let him override either. Man, panicking, decides to open the hatch anyway. The endurance depressurizes from the exposure to space. Fragments of the ship explode, man with it. Um, I remember that's another moment in the theater because that's something you, even watching it now, it's like they really don't build to that moment at all. There's no build to it. I love that. It's just, he's just doing his thing. And I don't remember his last line. It's something like- Well, they like do kind of build to it because uh, Cooper is on the comp link shouting at man, like, don't do it. You're not, you're going to depressurize the place. Don't right. do it. And yeah, he does it anyway. But You know, you know, it's going wrong, but the, the moment it happens is so, it happens so fast. And then I just love the way it cuts and the sound cuts out and you just see the fragments of the ship over the planet and it's just the silhouettes. I just- it's really visually. It is, it's, it's well done. I, it's, I'll say that. Visu visually stunning. Visually um, stunning. The, yeah. yeah. But we'll get to it after. Uh, fragments of the ship explode. Man with it. The endurance is endured. The endurance endured. Finally. But it is in a tailspin towards the planet's surface. With no options. Cooper, and in a badass move, latches his ship with the failing endurance. That, Narrowly. That is probably the more badass sequence. This is probably like. Again, I'm not a fan of this segment, but him having to attach himself to the endurance in a tailspin was really well shot. It was incredibly. I mean, it just, despite it being a good you know moment for the character of him finally taking control and doing his own thing and actually working his plan, you know, um, the way that whole sequence was done was breathtaking. Everything between the score, the cut, the editing, the the just the cutting, uh, just the actors. I mean, there was so much tension because like as a movie goer, you expect it to go right. Cause it's a, it's a movie. You want the mission to succeed, but still the way it was done is just like I said, like it's breathtaking. It's, I love it. Um, he latches his ship with the failing endurance narrowly misses being taken in fully, uh, by the planet's gravitational pull with success. Brand laughs and Cooper shouts. And for our next trick and Nolan once again, references his, uh, magic tricks. I see a so magic trick. 
He uh, he loves his magic tricks. He loves his tricks. Murphy and Getty on Earth are trying to make it to Tom's house. In a very Grapes of Wrath scene, they pass loaded up cars on the road, but there is no safe place anymore. Getty examines Tom's family and says that they cannot stay there. There's too much dust in their lungs. Tom, rational, rational as always, punches Getty. Murphy and Getty leave, but Murphy quickly changes her mind, knowing she cannot sit back as her family dies. She turns the car into the cornfield and burns it. While Tom is putting up the fire, Getty loads Tom's wife and son into the car, but Murphy is back in her old bedroom. She finds the watch her father gave her, which is ticking in a strange way. After man's attempt to dock, the endurance is not in, a good sh- not in good shape. Worse still, there is no longer enough fuel to get back to Earth. The only bright spot is the eggs on board are still safe, leaving Brand and Cooper no option but to proceed with plan B. Cooper has an idea to make it happen. He will use Newton's third law. By circling Gargantua, the black hole, the gravity can propel Brand and Edmonds to Edmonds' planet. TARS, for weight and research reasons, will go into the black hole. Tough stuff for TARS, too. They literally just like threw him right under the bus. They're like, yeah, you're going to do it. The plan is a go. And while because of time warp, it is 51 years later, everything is going according to plan. They loop around the black hole. TARS detaches. But in a twist, Cooper also detaches. His ship's weight would impede on getting Brand's Brand to Edmund's planet. Brand pleads for him not to go, but it is too late. He is sucked into Gargantua. In yet another homage to 2001, under the helmet, Cooper's horror-stricken face changes. Those shots are literally from 2001 A Space Odyssey. When he Those first enters the hole? Yeah, or him going into the hole. When he, you uh, have the close-ups on his face in the helmet changing as it flashes. The ship fails and Cooper is forced to eject. Momentarily, Cooper is floating in nothingness. Cooper is then sucked into a time warp. Resembling M.C. Escher's Relativity, surrounding Cooper are familiar bookshelves. Relativity is the is yes. the print with all of the staircases. The stairs for, going upside yeah. down and yeah, yeah. For I'm those who like... don't know. You know, it's a bookshelf on top of a bookshelf on top of a, you know, it's an endless uh it's an endless loop of, of uh yeah. bookshelves, just like relativity has the endless staircases. He's forced to look into the room, into the moment that has plagued Cooper's mind since he left home. Cooper tries to breach through the wall but cannot. While he physically cannot get through the dimensional barrier before him, he can move books on the shelves. Cooper was Murphy's ghost. Just like he told Murphy earlier, quote, once you're a parent, you're a ghost to your, child, to your children's future. In a foolish, albeit hopeful attempt, Cooper writes the message, stay. This has no effect. Cooper is forced to watch himself leave over again. Only this time he feels the weight of his decision and cries hysterically. Although it's almost comical. Uh, So disrespectful. While paralyzed by his pain, a familiar voice comes through on Cooper's communications link. Somehow TARS has made contact with them. They have created the bookshelves to pass 
the answer to the equation that will save humanity to Murphy. In binary, Cooper implants the solution into the watch that he gave to Cooper before he left. Murphy, in her room, looking at the watch, has an epiphany. She somehow realizes that Cooper was her ghost. How she realized this, I have no idea. Furthermore, she realizes from the strange way the watch is ticking that the answer is there. Cheerfully, she runs down the stairs and hugs Tom, who looks like he wants to kill someone. Let's not forget his crops were burnt down and his family was almost abducted moments ago. So him wanting to kill someone is, you know, not warranted, but somewhat understandable. Yeah. Back at NASA, Murphy solves the equation. Jubilant, she throws her papers in the air and kisses Getty. Which, does she not need these papers? Isn't that what she solved the equation on? I guess they're no longer important. She's got it in her head. The black hole around Cooper is closing. In a moment, he goes from the bookshelves to nothingness, to floating around Saturn, to waking up in a hospital bed. It was really quick. Very quick. Um, Cooper, now 124 years old, has woken up. And then he is in a new world that his daughter has created. Instead of a new planet, humanity has moved to a vast space station that resembles what Earth used to look like, baseball and all. I do wonder if the New York Yankees are still playing. I do have to wonder. Have to wonder. Uh, this is like, this is a real side note, and this really comes with everything going on in the world. It's just, if you look at the world that Murphy built, I'm not saying Nolan did this intentionally, but there are no black people aboard this new spacecraft. Not a single one is seen. Not anything but white people is seen on this new ship. Um, the doctor tells Cooper that he will be able to see Murphy in two weeks. She has just been woken up out of hibernation sleep. In the meantime, Cooper is able to stay at his old farmhouse, which is now a museum. This is where the interview cut-ins have come from. At the house, Cooper rebuilds TARS, but with honesty at 95% and humor at 75%. I guess that's uh, those are the settings that human beings should be at. Finally, the day has arrived. Cooper is able to see his daughter. Around Murphy's hospital bed are her family. Her children and grandchildren, family Cooper has never known. Upon Cooper's entry to the hospital room, the entire family parts from the bed, crying Murphy and Cooper embrace. With Cooper simply saying, you told him I liked farming? The conversation is very short. Murphy tells Cooper that he should leave. No parent should watch their child die. That's uh, a line literally out of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Cooper backs out of the room and the family returns to Murphy's bedside. Cooper maintaining, I think this is another, just a reference, the, I think this is the organ sound comes back in when they reveal the family and they reveal in the bed is the same as when he looks out the window in the beginning, but it's more nuanced. It's louder. It's that same 2001 bit you were talking about um cooper backs out of the room and the family returns to murphy's bedside cooper maintaining that humans are explorers feels that the world his daughter built is not where he belongs he and tars steal a spaceship they are heading to edmund's planet to be with brand well he's no longer a farmer well actually he, he might be he's gonna be a baby farmer on this edmund's yeah. planet honestly i wouldn't go to edmund's planet because literally what he's walking into is uh 
brand having to repopulate this new planet. So it's going to be nothing but babysitting for the first like 18 years. Well, I guess it leaves. I don't know what it's, it's more ambiguous, I guess. You get the idea that he's going to save her and they're going to leave. Are they going to stay there? I don't know if it's. No, I think they're going to repopulate Edmund's planet. They're going to build a new world. Is that directly stated? Because I feel like as all it's this implied. is no. I, I always saw it as that he's just going to find her because he realized he has feelings for her. And this whole movie is supposed to be about, it's really about love and whatever. And I don't know. So uh, you want to give your thoughts. final thoughts? Um, I feel that even though this was my most, uh, I guess you could say desensitized and uh, less engaged viewing I still feel like this is kind of uh, – I feel like this is Christopher Nolan's magnum opus in terms of, like, everything he's been trying to do. In terms of, like – I mean, it's literally his – he's made it clear that he wanted this to be his most important film, his big, his most meaningful project, and I think to a degree he kind of succeeds. Now, I'm not saying that means I think it's his best film, but I, I do think that this thing – I don't know. It kind of transcends – uh, the genre in the same way that 2001 did but I also feel like this is more of it for me it's more of an homage to 2001 than a blatant ripoff that's how I see it that's I'll let you I'll, I'll let you go to say but it's basically like I feel like he's basically just trying to give to a new generation what Kubrick gave 2001 to people of another generation and like I don't know because it's like he's trying to do a similar thing and saying like, this is about space, but it's also about life. It's also about humanity and time and whatever. Um, it's also a lot more boiled down for mainstream audiences, which is also where the flaws lie, which is where the plot logic gaps come in and where there's a lot of suspension of disbelief in terms of not just like the science fiction of it, but the whole ending, the whole idea of, of, of a, a fourth dimension or something taking shape of whatever it was of Coop's uh, feelings and whatnot. There's a lot, there's a lot of reaching in this movie and I can, you can really feel it. I don't know, man, this is really just kind of hits a nail on the head for me. That's, I just really, I feel very strongly about it. I always have since I saw it. I mean, I saw it, like I said, I saw it twice in 24 hours, but um, yeah, this is easily the weakest experience I've had with it, but it's also, Ah, man, I, I've always stuck my guns to this one. I've always uh, I've always felt very strongly towards it, but uh, I do want to hear your thoughts. Okay. Um, Just hit me with it. Now, here's the thing. Let's start with the good. The visual effects and what Nolan does scope-wise cannot be touched. It is, it's a, yeah. it is brilliant the way that he filmed this. And some of the scenes are absolutely stunning. Like I said the scene where Cooper has to attach to the endurance as it's coming crashing to the planet, to man's planet, it's stunning. I'm not taking away from any of that. Now, that being said, every time I watch this movie, I feel less and less connected to it. I feel as though this is just a 2001 A Space Odyssey ripoff with science thrown into it. It's going in, in the opposite direction. They're literally <laughs> going on a space odyssey, just throwing, shouting the science in your face. It's Nolan literally saying to you, 
look, I did my homework. You see, Kubrick, I did my homework. What you did was correct. But it follows a lot of the same beats. And I'm going to be honest, I prefer the ambiguous nature of 2001 A Space Odyssey to this. I don't have the emotional connection to this movie that it's trying to make me feel. Mm. And let's be honest, there's a lot of emotional uh, manipulation that Nolan is trying to get on to here. And like I said before, you know, his connection to his daughter is nice, but it's diminished by the fact that he shows no compassion to his son whatsoever. I feel as though this movie is just, it's very uneven. I made a note also, it takes 42 minutes to get off the planet. Yeah. And I have no problem being on Earth, but it's also like, what's really going on here? Nothing. We're just watching the desolation of this planet for 42 minutes. I get well, it. Well, they got to build the characters and the setup and the plot and why they ha- need to go into space. I mean, you need the build to it. You know what I mean? So I get you need the build to it, but it's also like the build to me, didn't pay off. You can build in a shorter amount of time and still have it pay off. This movie is two hours and 49 minutes. It is pretty fucking long. It's a workout. It is a workout. I, again, I don't despise this movie. I, that's I, fine. Even if I, you did, it's fine. No, I appreciate the ambition of this movie. I just don't think it paid off the way that other people do. Yeah. See, I think, see, I was complete. You talk about Nolan manipulating people's feelings and like, I know when I'm supposed to be manipulated into the feeling and I completely own it. I completely am. So yeah, I completely buy into it. Like him crying when he's watching the video of his kids. Um, that moment uh, hits, but later on, it's completely undone. When he sees his daughter, this whole reason he's going through this whole adventure is to be back with his daughter. And he sees his daughter for two minutes before she kicks him out it is like, strange are you kidding he, me like the whole thing you just went on was to get back to her it, and now yeah. you're telling me that you're gonna spend two minutes with her like well no i on. mean i think i think that he knows she's going to die and i think that he knows that she knows that she's going to die and so they both share this small moment where he's by her bedside it's too and, small of a moment i'm sorry I, I i agree i think there almost should have been more of a a delivery of McConaughey sitting with like the overwhelming like when he first gets to the space station of, of like realizing like he should have been in awe which he was and then having a moment of like it's been x amount of years like your daughter's whatever she you know she's not much time for him to process that and because none you, of the other family wants to even like meet him you know yeah, it's like I mean, they're all in the hospital room and every single one of them completely ignores him it's like this is your grandfather or your great-grandfather yeah like, you don't want to say at least hello yeah, this yeah, guy, yeah. murphy has probably told you all about him and how yeah. he basically saved humanity right. and you're just gonna diss him like this if um, well if if this is i mean if they're going for more again like you said like it's really the rather relationship between him and his daughter i think they just wanted to make it just about them i really don't like in that moment like i those are things that those are kind of things that i can pick up but I also don't care about like for me, it's more of just kind of like, Hey, this is really, it's really just about this moment between him and his daughter, which I do agree that like that should have been more of a milked moment. I think they should have had more. It should have been 
tug it should have been tugging on my heartstrings way more in that final moment because really the whole crux of this movie is supposed to say this is about a father and a daughter so by the time you get there it's emotional but it's not you don't feel like you're it's not tugging on your heartstrings the way like he no, does at the screen you know it's one joke from mcconaughey a hey what's up i point at my watch now get the fuck out yeah like, i mean I, and that's I, not I, that, that's not what it was building to yeah um and i almost believe that that's like as uh, again a suspension of disbelief even emotional disbelief it's almost like i can almost believe that at this point like what is there to be said like she's really she's so she's literally about to die and it's just like he feels like he abandoned her and like you get this moment that maybe they feel like they're forgiving each other i don't know um i think it's a good special moment but it's also like it does feel a little cheated because it's kind of like I don't know. This is, I feel like that's what the whole movie's building towards. That's what I'm um, saying. And yeah. again, back to man, I understand man is supposed to be like the hell of this movie. He's the cog in the wrench that throws the crew in its biggest test. But I'm not blaming Damon, but it's almost like cartoonish how it plays out. He comes in out of nowhere and you're just like, what is going on? When did this movie shift tonally to what is happening right now? Well, you realize that the motivations are different for every person. Because he's on this mission that you, you're supposed to believe up until that point. That he's, they're all on this collective mission to save humanity. It's a and metaphor so, to beat you over the head with. Because, again, yeah. his name is Man. He's showing you once again that man cannot be trusted. And like, I, know. I, don't, I buy it, man. I totally I, buy it. And that's great that you do. <laughs> I just it's great that if you don't. Don't need this additive of knowing that man is a sadistic race. We already got that with the reveal of Michael Caine's character holding off on the gravitational question. We understood that man has motives outside of what they are presenting from that scene of, of uh, Michael King dying in the hospital and it's more impactful than anything that happens on oh yeah planet. I mean his that delivery he gives is it's Michael King being Michael King it's incredible yeah. but I also do think you need that I think that third point of view helps because even though Michael King feels guilty and he's he's heartbroken and he's he's confessing that this play was not what it we thought it was and he knew he was covering up a lie he feels bad about it that's the difference where man is like hey uh, I have this whole motive and point of view and I don't feel bad about it. You know what I mean? He does not have the empathy. Well, he He's all about the mission. He kind of and does as he sits there monologuing as McConaughey is suffocating. You know, he's literally Bond villain monologuing as yeah. McConaughey is suffocating. And I'm like, I just don't care about anything that's going on right now. See, I think it's the that, that extra point of view makes mcconaughey's mission way more important even though as a moviegoer i know that okay he's become a villain out of nowhere it's kind of come from nowhere and now it's going to be this wrench in a plot that is going to drive the next 20 minutes and that's exactly what happens all um, i'm saying is they could have hit an asteroid field outside the planet had the endurance destroyed and had the same impact in half the time um I, I agree. I think that you could have watching, especially this time, because it's just the more movies you watch, the more you just know how to pick things apart based on everything else you've seen. But it's just like, I feel like you could have made the movie even stranger and darker and weirder. Um, 
but the, what I wrestle with is that the moviegoer I've become is someone who embraces that kind of very bizarre out of left field kind of. And that's what I am saying when I compare it to 2001 A Space Odyssey. 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey is not laying the science out to you. It is showing you the astronauts on oh, their mission, but yeah. it is not beating you over the head with the fact that there are facts. I don't like it's great that Nolan took the time to learn how wormholes and black holes would actually look. That's great. And I, he should have taken that into account, but you don't need I to mean, sit there and explain the science to me. Just I, um, if you just went through the black hole and didn't explain the science to me, I feel like it would have been more interesting. I actually agree with you on that. I think that as much as I think this movie is a, uh, uh, it's a real, um, it's a real testament to not just Nolan's career, but to like sci-fi film in general. I do think the self-commentary definitely weakens it compared to what I've grown to love about ambiguous ambiguity in films. Cause this one thing this movie's not is it's not ambiguous. It's like, it, it presents huge ideas, but it also presents a beginning, a middle and an end. And in, in the end, that is, this is just about Coop's story, him and his daughter. Whereas like 2001 has the story about the characters and, Hal and all that but it's really there's a lot of open-ended discussion in terms of like what are the bigger questions here and Nolan loves doing this and he proves it in Inception and a couple of other of his works he has imaginative ideas but he feels the need to ground them to such a level that I am I, I, I won't say I'm bored but I'm like I don't need to be told. I don't need to an explanation for everything. I really don't. Well, like, I mean, just to, just let it play out. I do agree that they didn't need as many as much explanation or exposition. And again, I just want to say I appreciate the visual effects. I appreciate McConaughey's performance. I appreciate a lot of what this movie has to offer. But on the whole, it's an uneven film for me. I think that when you strip away what it's trying to say and you just look at the story it's presenting that's where it's both hit or miss it's kind of just like all right are you invested in this relationship i'm so suckered into the bigger ideas so like i always give this movie kudos but at the end of the day it's like when you strip it away it's like i said there's not a lot to be left with outside of just the bigger questions you're asking while you're watching it the theme of this movie is the power of love and yeah. at the end of the at the end of the day when Cooper gets back to Murphy, the love that he has been looking for, because he doesn't even question where Tom is. Tom is dead, I assume, and he doesn't care. He just cares about his daughter. And even then, Justice when he sees his daughter, it's for two minutes before she kicks him out, and he's just like, oh, okay, I'll leave. Um, I'm going to go find and pork in Hathaway. Um, yeah, well, I mean, when you put it that way, like, I understand. And that for years, people have always said, um, uh, they're, they're, I've always said things uh, not bashing the movie but they've said you know oh it's not that great or whatever and I've never actually listened I'm, I'm thrilled you feel the way you do and I, I, I and a lot of it I, I do agree with what you're I mean I think what rings most in terms of what you're I agree with is the exposition and explanation I think it's what hurts the movie because what you're doing is and like I said when I was talking about my first thoughts and feelings is that it's kind of spoon feeding a mainstream audience because what you're doing is you're watching this movie and you could not know a lick about science and you could walk away knowing a little more. 
again, it's spoon feeding you the intelligence. I, it's not asking you to think, it's telling you what to think. I think yeah. uh, that's a good spot to end. Uh, I agree. The uh, final thoughts here. So please give your pick of the week. This week, I'm going to go with Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. Ooh, that's I, good. That movie, Stanley Kubrick, 1964. One of the darkest comedies that you will ever watch. Literally the blackest of black comedies. You are watching a movie about the end of the world and it is so funny. And in this time of political upheaval, it's nice to watch a movie or maybe not nice, but it's fun to watch a movie to that just reinforces the fact that like the people that we think are have our back and are in charge are just as stupid and adept at making mistakes as we are um so i when i first saw that movie was years ago i actually didn't like it because i remember people saying oh it's like really funny it's a comedy and like watching it being like i don't see how this is a comedy i can see how it's a tire and it was one of those movies that, like, especially when it gets the guy, the guy, the classic scene of the man swinging his cowboy hat, falling yeah, down Slim on the. Pickens. Yeah, that was the point. Where I was He's like, okay, I think, I think this movie really is a comedy that I'm just not understanding. And it was one of those movies. The more I watched, the more I saw of it being like a satire on diabolical villains, most of just kind of like the image of people and the guy, the glasses and the smoke and the cigar. Like it's just everything about. Love. That's you know the, you've got your classic character. You know it's just kind of. Peter Sellers in that movie, fucking amazing. He plays three different parts. Each um, of them is unique and brilliant and it's very it's very telling of that that's very telling of the times. It's very self-aware and it's very It's one of those movies that's like timeless because there is always gonna be absurdity with the seriousness of the times. So tell me uh what's your pick? On that note, I have uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead from uh, 1977. (laughs) Talk about comedies here. I'm going to take some dark comedy, dark black and white comedy in a different direction. Just, I had, um, yeah, that was, uh, that's one I can't even begin to talk about. Just as how, uh, you know, as much of satire on parenting as it is on uh, claymation and prosthetics and kooky makeup and very very strange filmmaking that baby is i mean that movie felt like a student film stretched out and just on whatever microdosing on whatever kind of acid is in the layers of that movie that is always kind of stayed with me that one that was david lynch's first movie could you imagine that being your first movie that's like a tour de force of just like i'm here now to make shit that yeah. says a lot about like, hey, I don't care what anyone has ever done with a camera or a script, but I'm here and this is my thing and I'm going to do more of this and you're just going to take it. All right, everyone. This has been another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? It's As been always, real, folks. You can follow me on at Mr. Filmart on Instagram. We're working on getting the uh, page for this site going. Absolutely. And- and uh, hey guys, just remember, we're explorers, not people who gather at home. Mm-hmm.